who is going to be doing uh, the first session on the 12 steps and how they use that 12 steps in their relationships. Uh, I've heard them share on the 12 traditions, and I have never heard them do the 12 steps, so this is really going to be a treat for me. So without further ado, I would like to introduce Sue and Keith. Uh, and I don't know if you're going to both stand at the, at the microphone together, or are you going to... Yeah. Okay, great. Hello, everybody. I'm an alcoholic. My name's Keith. Hi, And I'm a grateful member of the Alnon family group, and I'm Sue. Hi, Sue. Uh, my sobriety date's May the 11th, 1976, and for that I'm especially grateful. I'm glad to be able to do this, and it's always a special uh, privilege to be able to share uh, the steps and traditions and what we've done and how we've used them in our life. They're, they're a part of our life, a way of life. And... Uh, it's always good to do this. Uh, I, I read something in my uh, meditation the other day that uh, was quite a, uh, it just kind of stepped out to me. And it's, my, it said something to this effect that, uh, you know, my experiences are mine and I can't give them to you uh, for you to use unless you know I care. And, uh, and I do care. I wouldn't share uh, uh, how these steps have affected our life if I didn't care for you. Uh, if I was so selfish that I, I could work the steps and the traditions and, and confine them to my life, uh, I wouldn't need to do what we're doing here today. We, we've experienced something as a result of these steps and the literature that we've, uh, you know, taken from the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon and applied in our life, and it's worked. Uh, and I, I, I say that in a sense of, uh, we've been together for 35 years, we've been married for 33 years, and uh, and our life is totally, absolute, and totally different for the last 19 and a half years than it was for the 13, 14 years, or what have you, uh, prior to that. Uh, we went together for two years uh, regularly, uh, steadily, and then we got married, and uh, and we've been married for 33 years. So these steps in this way of life has totally changed everything about our relationship with each other and our outlook on life. And our attitude about life, so it works. Uh, we ha we have a family. Uh, we had one daughter uh, during the active disease, and uh, that daughter uh, has been in, in uh, Alatine and Al-Anon for 19 years, and she's applied the steps uh, in in her life, and the books, and the literature, and this way of life in her life. And not only has she uh, uh, become a complete and totally different person. Uh, and had a good, successful life and a happy life and lives a happy life, productive life today. Uh, but her relationship with her mother and father has completely changed and, and uh, from a terrible, terrible, uh, uh, violent, verbal uh, abuse, uh, sexual abuse, uh, everything you can imagine, uh, uh, to absolute and total forgiveness, acceptance, and has been able to take as a result of these steps into her life and get married and live without all the uh, carryover of the confusion and the trash out of the active disease. So if there's anything that uh, these steps have done, it's taken people that could have very easily said we were victims and moved us out into the mainstream of life and allowed us to function 
as a human beings, a healthy human beings in relationships as a family, relationships in work, a relationship with our uh, uh, our groups, uh, you know, and our neighbors, our community, everything about our life. And, uh, you know, it's a uh, change, change. We, the steps and, and what is outlined in the literature here has been the primary uh, guidelines to change. Now, we, we were in Oklahoma last weekend, and, and uh, we had an opportunity to go back there for an Al-Anon convention. There was a lot of uh, old-timers there, long-timers, old-timers, uh, people in Al-Anon and, and uh, AA. And uh, <clears throat> we had an opportunity to talk to people who've been here 30 and 40 years and seen things go over and over and over and change over and over and all those kind of things. And one of the most important things is that I that I got last weekend, we had a little book study with some people who are very knowledgeable with the book. And, and it, I've been here 19 and a half years, and I know all this, but the reason I like to do this is because there's things, affirmations that I've filed away and heard it when I was one year sober, two years sober, three years sober. And then I, I kind of, I guess, rest all my laurels. And then things come up, and I reach back, and I get the important things and pull them out and put it to use again. Uh, and many times due to surrenders, <laughs> you know. And uh, one of the most important things that jumped out at me by being with people that have been here a long, long time last weekend is that <clears throat> particularly in, uh, in talking about Alcoholics Anonymous and Su as a, Al Anon is a, is a big book thumper, and if you want to know anything about disease of alcoholism, why you go to the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's where it describes it. That's the textbook for the disease of alcoholism. And one of the important things that was really hammered into us and really jumped out to those of us who got to go through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous somewhat last weekend was is the, the very first, now I'm not a historian on Alcoholics Anonymous or anything. I, I don't memorize a lot of things. But the very first Alcoholics Anonymous ever, and, and Al-Anon is only 44 years old, and AA is, what, 55, 60s? And uh, so the very first Alcoholics Anonymous, the very first Alcoholics Anonymous was the big book Alcoholics Anonymous. That was the very, before fellowship, there was two drunks, and they, they documented this. They needed something to uh, work from, a textbook. They were not stupid people. They were educated people, businessmen, bankers, what have you. And, uh, and they put together the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, the text, and, and uh and the guy explained it to there's really not sure what had happened, but some guy come out of a nut ward and wandered in a room where they were trying to name this thing, and they had all these various <laughs> names they were going to assign the book, and uh, ultimately uh, they couldn't come up with something that didn't conflict, and this nut walked in and said, well, you know, I've been looking for you guys for a week. You're really anonymous, and uh, and uh, I'm an alcoholic. And they said, why don't we call it Anonymous Alcoholic? And then they said, no, why don't we call it Alcoholics Anonymous? And that, that's so the story goes. The historians seem to think that there's a possibility. That's the way they got it. So that was the very first Alcoholics Anonymous ever. And from that, they started Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. Point is, the very first Alcoholics Anonymous was the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. So there are two Alcoholics Anonymouses. Just like there's two Al-Anon. The first Alcoholics Anonymous is the book. The second Alcoholics Anonymous is the fellowship. So if you're trying to stay sober or sane on the fellowship, you're doing it the hard way.
the easy way is to use the book and the steps because that gives you a prescribed definition of how to bake the cake. And they even explained this very simply, as they said, in this book, when they wrote this book years and years and years ago, they gave a percentage. Of course, there was fewer and fewer, but they gave a percentage. And I take this in this room, this percentage, this small room. In this book, followed the prescription of this book. It says that 100% of the people who come here, of that 100%, 50% will stay and recover following the directions of this book. 25% of the other 50% will drink and come back, and 25% will go and die. And I guarantee you that our programs are watered down today to the point that it is nothing like 75%. You're lucky if you get 1% and 2%. And that's what jumped out at me last weekend, listening <laughs> to people with 30 and 40 years put this into application and bring it back. And so that's why I care. I think we've done something, there's been something missing, there's something that we've made it a social thing, whatever we've done, probably uh, because there was an influx of people in uh, whatever, we got those percentages way down. And, uh, and I care about those percentages. And so I share what we've learned in this book and what we've come to understand from these steps. The one thing that I'll share real quickly on step one and then Sue can go. In the, and I and I don't. The big book came first, and the twelve and twelve came second. And the traditions came third. I do not study the twelve and twelve without following it along in the big book. I do not study the big book without following it along with the twelve and twelve. If you listen to people who are very knowledgeable about the big book, the stories and stuff, this is divided up in certain steps. When I read the twelve and twelve, I have to go back to the big book. So I study them both. In our home group, we have Monday night have a twelve and twelve. We have a 12-step uh, meeting on Wednesday night. We have a book meeting. And when I go to the 12 and 12 meeting, I take my big book and I follow it and I go and reference points to the stories in the big book. Whenever I study the big book, I take my 12 and 12 and I go through it because it's a whole package. And they found as they did the book, then they found they needed the steps, and then they found they needed the tradition. So I follow this. It's very important to me to share with you that one of the things that I uh, recognize about a period of four years that I drank in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous, I tried to take the second half of the first step without taking the first half of the first step. And in my relationship, for me to come into this relationship of you as a fellowship, this book as a text, and my family, and try to fix the unmanageability of my life without admitting that I'm powerless, I could not stay sober. Ironically, we were talking just a few minutes before we started this meeting, <clears throat> and uh, Jim and I outside, and we were talking about it. He was telling me about a guy that got up and talked, and he was 10 years sober, and after he got through talking, he run all this stuff out. And uh, the guy's sponsor got up and said, you're going to drink again, and I can tell you when. And the guy said, what do you mean? He said, you're going to drink again, and when you're going to drink again is you're going to run up against a surrender, which you will not surrender to. That's when you're going to drink. And what you're going to say right before you drink is this. Screw it. Nobody cares, and even me. So that is the point of step one. I had to become powerless. 
That is the most important reference point to my entire program, to my sobriety, to my relationship, or anything else. Had to become powerless. And if you look on Bill's story on page five in the big book, it says, Nevertheless, I still thought I could control the situation, and there were periods of sobriety which renewed my wife's hope. That is the great lie. That is the true and false. And until I could do that in my relationship, do that in me, do it with my fellow, my men, friends, sponsors, whatever, that powerlessness was. I'd try to work the second half of the first step. As soon as I get my life in order, boom, 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 we'll be fine. And I stay drunk over and over and over <laughs> and over again. Once I rendered it powerless, it's a reference point for everything in my life. I am powerless over my relationship with my wife. I am powerless over anybody else on the face of the earth. The ABC says that. Once I accepted that I'm powerless and I surrendered, then I have a power greater than me. And the primary purpose of this is to help me find a power greater than myself. And once I could do that, God worked on the relationship, and then we could go into the second half of the first step. Hi, I'm Sue. Hi, Sue. I wondered when I got here uh, why they had... Uh, the same first step as in Alcoholics Anonymous because our steps are the same. Alcoholics Anonymous gave them to Al-Anon, and I wondered why, because we don't have a problem with alcohol. And what Keith was sharing earlier about us being in Oklahoma and the power that was at that conference was unreal with all of the long-timers that were there. And what I have to realize about these steps and the teachings that I got is a foundation that I have to stand on the rest of my life. So what I learned in the beginning, and if there's any newcomers in here, it's the effort and the willingness that you put into these steps in the beginning of our lives that we will stand on for the rest of our lives. And I have 19 years in this program. My Sane date is May sometime, which tells you how sane I was, uh, of 1976. And, uh, and I have to realize that when I came in here, I was crazier than a loony bug. And the reason I feel so strong about these kind of things in this program is because, like Keith was sharing with the AA Big Book being AA and the fellowship being another AA, it's happening in Al-Anon, too. It's a popularity contest in Al-Anon. It's PTA in Al-Anon. And that's not why I'm here. I need this program as much today, 19 years later, as I did when I walked in the doors of Al-Anon. And that's why it is so important to me today that I am so grateful that I had the strong sponsorship in the very beginning that gave me the basics, that gave me the steps, gave me the principles because I stand on them today. And so if you're sponsoring someone, it is so important to get them into the steps and the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, in my opinion, because that's where we came from. And I love this program so much, I don't want it watered down. There's going to be a few of us around here that will try to keep Al-Anon exactly the way it is. And there's a, a lot that are going to go on the other side of the street, and they're going to have fun and yuck it up over there, and you're going to feel lonely over here because you're doing the foundation. But the secret of longevity in this program is that the path gets narrower 
and the crowd gets smaller. That's why you do not have a lot of long-timers in this program because people come around here to get their life better, and I'm happy, and I'm joyous, and I'm free, and now i got to have fun. Fun is a byproduct of applying these principles to our lives. It will automatically come. The happiness, the joy, the freedom will automatically come if we have a strong foundation. And when I got here, it's because I wanted the secret. And that's the first thing it says in the first step in the Al-Anon 12 and 12. I wanted the secret for sobriety. I'd run out of all, all my answers. All my old ideas were not working. I had no answers, and that's why I feel that I became powerless. I was powerless over alcohol because I didn't know what was going to happen to my husband when he drank alcohol. And I did not have the power to make him do anything anymore. I'd lost that power because he didn't listen to me anymore. He did not mind. <laughs> it says our schemes and threats had succeeded only in our being physically and emotionally exhausted. We were powerless. We were asked to admit that and believe that if we wanted to make progress and improve the quality of our lives, we had to admit that we were powerless. And that's why I love uh, the ABCs in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous because it says in there, no human power can relieve their alcoholism. And I believe that that is one specific place in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that is talking about Al-Anons. No human power can relieve their alcoholism. I had to realize that I did not have the power to relieve his alcoholism and that my life was unmanageable because every time I focused on him or whatever it was that I got obsessed with, my life became unmanageable. That I gave him more time than I gave my own self. I thought of him first before I ever thought of me. Therefore, my life was going to hell. No wonder I felt bad about myself. And so I had, had to admit that I was powerless. Number one, I can't get an alcoholic sober. I can't keep an alcoholic sober. An alcoholic sobriety is not my answer. Because when he got sober, I remained nuts. And he wasn't doing stuff, and I went crazy the first six weeks of this program. And then I made a commitment to myself that I can't make it on one meeting a week. And I have to go to two and three and more Al-Anon meetings every week. Or I start losing it. And I don't want to do that. That scares the hell out of me. I don't fit in this world without these steps. And my life will start becoming unmanageable. Uh, in, in step one, and this is a very important thing with a relationship, because a relationship is an obsession. Mm -hmm. An obsession is an idea that overpowers all other ideas. And I had a relationship with alcohol. I also was trying to have a relationship with a wife. And so I could, you know, I could be obsessed with my wife, but I would drink and become obsessed with the alcohol. And so then they would become confusing. And uh, that's why for the alcoholic and why it says in step one, he had hit bottom as truly as any of us. John Barleycorn himself had become our best advocate. That's at a point where alcohol became my obsession over all other things. I could promise her anything, and then alcohol would take over, and my obsession was alcohol. 
Why all this insistence that every AA must hit bottom first? The answer is that a few people will sincerely try to practice the AA program. Maybe I should read that again. The answer is that few people will sin few few is not very many <clears throat> will sincerely try to practice the AA program unless they have hit bottom. Now, isn't that strange? The answer is that few people will sincerely try to practice this program in a relationship unless they have hit a bottom. For practicing AA's remaining 11 steps means the adoption of attitudes and actions that almost no alcoholic who is still thinking can dream of taking. So if you put that in a relationship, as long as I think I can control this relationship, I'm not going to work the next 11 steps. And, and I, I change the words in a step, and I change that simply because if you go to the bottom of that paragraph, we stand ready to do anything which will lift the merciless obsession from us. And so you have to do what's required in the next 11 steps. Step two, based in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and Bill's story, very simply on page nine, they had told of a simple religious idea and a practical program of action. So surrender is a simple religious idea, and then it outlines a program of action. And step two is, came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore us to sanity. To be restored to sanity is humility. I cannot have a relationship with anyone, much less my wife, unless there's humility in it. I am powerless over that. I have to allow her to be herself. I have to allow you to be yourself. And that in itself induces humility. That induces humility. If you haven't taken the first step, you get in and you try to control. You get in and you try to control. And so it doesn't work. In Al-Anon, I had to believe, you know, I had to look at myself and see what I was doing that was causing me the insanity in the thinking in my life, which is talking about the obsession. And my obsession was the alcoholic. You had to let him go. How do you let him go? You know, and in reading in the AA, the Al-Anon, 12 and 12 in the AA Big Book, one of the things that I got out of that in the second step is that in both Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon literature, it talks about how intelligence is not our answer but can be our enemy. And so it's talking about surrender, and I believe that that Al-Anons have to hit that surrender, just like every alcoholic does. When you get to the bottom and you just give up, because the last drunk in our home, it's like, that was my bottom. And I looked at Keith and said, I don't hate you anymore, but I don't love you either. And you got to do what you got to do. I didn't care. I didn't stand there and fight over who gets the house, who gets the car, who gets the kid, who gets the checkbook. I didn't care. I just had to get out because I couldn't live that way anymore. And that's a bottom. And so I had to learn that a power greater than myself could restore me to the sanity. Once we admitted that, it says in our book that we begin to grow. Once we admit the powerlessness, once we admit the unmanageability, then we begin to grow. That's ready to say, okay, I've got an answer. 
There's something that's going to help restore me to sanity and accepting that. We needed more than the human experience and intelligence to solve the problems of living, especially living with an alcoholic, whether drinking or not. It doesn't matter. It's all up to me. And so I have to believe that there is a power that's not the alcoholic, but there is a power that cares about me enough that's going to help me start this walk down this path that is going to lead me to some kind of sanity. And it talks about humility. So it's at this point that some humility started coming in my life because when I first got a just a smidgen of humility in my life, it's when I said, help me. That's a part in the second step where sponsorship comes in. For us... We could not work the second step without getting a sponsor. How can I ask a power greater than me to restore me to sanity if I don't have guidance? I went to churches. I had all these simple religious ideas about this thing, but I had no direction. I had nobody explain it to. Will you guys open those windows? Everybody's sleeping. I may want to. <laughs> and so without doing anything uh, uh, with the sponsorship, I can't do this second step. And there's an amazing thing. I always tie page 68 in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous uh, in with the second step because on page 68, there's something that I missed uh, for, I mean, I I guess you don't miss it, but you just, there's things that happen and you wonder why and blah, blah, blah. And I, I kept thinking, you know, God's will, when the second step's the first time we talk about a power, God, power, power, God, higher power, all that kind of stuff. And so what I was doing in here was uh, I was looking for God's will. Okay, God, show me your will. And that is not what this thing's talking about. If you look on page 68 in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, what it says in here, uh, we ask him to remove our fear and direct our attention to what he would have us be. And for a period of time, I'm trying to say, okay, God, show me your will so I can do it, and then I'll be what I'm supposed to be. And that's that philosophy that I could make decisions in my relationship that said, well, God wants me to do this. Yeah, right. Nothing sicker than a newcomer, than a newcomer's higher See? power. And what God wants us to do, <laughs> I heard it said this weekend that responsibility is having the attitude to respond to God's will. See? And so that's a change of attitude. Step two is a change of attitude. And, and uh, one of the things that we talk about in here, true humility is only, um, I mean, when you get to step three, it's talking about, in the big book, talks about getting on your knees with another human being and doing step three. That brings another human being in for you to use as a witness that you got on your knees or got in a position, got up here, you down here, and you let somebody else see you do this. Now, I did this in church all the time, but I was doing the congregation thing, so I was hurting. But to get with somebody else and get personal... And, and the same way with step five, and the same way with some of these other steps, and same way with my relationship. True humility in my relationship was for me to sh let my family see that I, the king, was asking for help. 
And the word, the buzzword for that was sponsor. And they told me I needed a sponsor so that an idiot wouldn't be running my life. An idiot had been running my life for 36 years. And so that was the thing that showed my family that I'm willing to do it a different way. They were so used to me doing things and, and failing that the sponsor was a new word. It was a new direction. And it was pointed out, and we all got sponsors, and we followed direction. We didn't argue with that. When we come to believe that a power greater than us could restore us to sanity, the faith and the strength that was coming from that was that we're taking somebody else's ideas and putting them in here and trying to do it like them. See? And the insanity of an Alna, as you hear it so many times, you can't tell me what to do. Now, why do we feel so strong about that after we come to this program and we ask for help, and now we're looking for a power greater than ourselves to restore us to sanity when we gave all that power before we got here to an alcoholic and the disease of alcoholism drove us nuts. And we came here and we said, help me. And then we say, no, you can't tell me what to do. And it totally contradicts everything we come here for. And if you're sponsoring somebody like that, say, wait a minute. And take them right back to the first step. Take them right back to the first step and say, I thought you were powerless. Because I didn't have a God in my life when I got here. So a power greater than myself was sponsor. And that's going to lead me on a road to the third step. Once I get this sponsor, that sponsor is going to start me on a path that's going to introduce me to a higher power that is a power greater than any human being. But when I get here, I'm still relying on human beings as my higher power. So in the very beginning in this program, my sponsor was my higher power. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that if you have chosen strong sponsorship in your life. One thing Sue and I were talking about just recently uh, because there's uh, something in the area of relationships that's coming up. People are having trouble with relationships because they have conflicting sponsor direction. And you can do that. I mean, I, I was so sick that I picked sponsor in the very beginning that was sick like me. Sick attracts sick, just like relationship. You come in here and guy and gal can get together and if they're sick, they attract sick. You come in here and if you're sick, you can find somebody in AA that's sick or Al-Anon that's sick that'll co-sign your sick, and you can ask them to be your sponsor. So two sickos are going down trying to sponsor. <laughs> I mean, I've had some very sick sponsors. And I look back on it, and I think, my God, it's amazing I stayed sober. You know, which in itself <laughs> lets me know that God was in that thing, or I wouldn't have, because some of my sponsors are drunk. I had a sponsor that blew his head off. I had a sponsor that got drunk. And he was directing me, see, and uh, and I thought he was done. So there's a very important thing that comes in step three. Step three made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood Him. And in the very beginning, I turned my will and my life over to God as I understood Him was a sponsor, and sometimes a group. And this is the first place that we see God. This is the first place in our program that it talks about God. On, on step three, page 35, once we have placed the key of willingness in the lock and have the door ever so slightly open, we find that we can always open it more. The door of the sick mind opens from the inside. It does, there is no keyhole on the outside. 
If it were, why churches and psychiatrists and all kinds of well-meaning people, families and loved ones, could open that door and put the answer in, you'd be fine. The door to the sick mind opens from the inside. And so sponsors and people who try to help us have to trick us to get us to open that door just a little bit. <laughs> so that's what sponsors for. They're, to me, my sponsor in the very beginning was in my life to make me feel bad. And I'd tell her that. You make me feel bad. You hurt my feelings. And she'd say, good, because we're here to save your life. You know how to handle the bad feelings. We're we here were, to save your life. We were listening to a tape of my sponsor. My sponsor is Jack Sullivan of Louisville, Kentucky. And Jack's over 33 years now, something like that, a little more. And Jack said, you know, if you don't want to help me, me to help you, I can't help you. Jack told me the other day, he said, here's the role of a sponsor. Get this straight and tell it exactly like I told you to the people you sponsor. I talk. You listen. When you quit listening, I quit talking, and we're done. If you ask me to be your sponsor, then I share with you because I care for you. When you don't want to listen to me anymore, we're through talking. It's over. I can't sponsor you anymore. See? And what, I, what that did in a relationship is we were trying to sponsor each other. Let me talk, and you listen. <laughs> and that's nobody what got her sick. Nobody was listening. <laughs> and so nobody was listening. See? And we go to AA speaker meetings together when we was new. That's the only place we could get along. And on the way home, I'd tell him what the AA speaker meant so he'd get it. And I know you guys have done that, too. It wasn't what I heard at all. <laughs> so we'd argue about that. But at least we were arguing about something new, something positive. We were having an argument about something positive. This is what they meant. And it wasn't like, you did this, you did that, you're not going to drink, you're not going to screw around, you're not going to do this. We was arguing about program stuff. And so something was getting in because we was trying to prove to each other that this works if you'll only hear it right. <laughs> so we were both convinced... We have both been surrendered. And it says, to learn is to recognize, reach out, accept, and act. And that's the third step. That's humbly made a decision to reach out, recognize, accept, and to act. On what? On this way of life. On this way of life. It says it's a spiritual gift. And it is the beginning of turning it over, letting go and letting God, and all those kind of things. It's our motivation to work the rest of the steps, and it gives us hope because it says, if we do this, it is ours alone. Nobody can ever take it away from us. Okay. One of the things that's uh, really important to establish the first three steps is the powerlessness and that somebody greater than you is going to help you and God talks through people and the important things that we found uh, uh, through that third step I was told you know I try to do the third step in my car going down the road and drive and talk to God and uh, you know all <laughs> them things and I still do that but my proper position with God is me on my knees and him in the right position and I you know I got 24 hours in a day to live 
if I can't get God uh, the proper uh, concentration in that, uh, at least 10 or 15 minutes, uh, you know, in 24 hours, well, then I don't care about God. I, I can tell you, I can watch, people I sponsor, I watch them, and, and they'll, you know, I'm a great, great, uh, and Sue and I both uh, advocate of, of meditation. And I can watch people, and they get sober after a period of while, and they quit doing their morning meditation, they quit doing that. I can watch, and they start getting crazy. You know, and I'll tell you what, I've watched guys that are sober 10, 11 years, and somewhere between 3 and 4 and 5, they quit doing their morning meditation. By the time they're 10 years sober, they're absolutely nuts. They're crazier than they were when they were new. I mean, it's unbelievable, because they ease it out, and the self-will comes in. And in the, in the meditation of the first three steps, the thing that has held our relationship together, we both have morning meditation individually. Exactly. We have got on our knees and did our prayers. You know, we got in the proper position to bring God. We brought God into that bedroom. We brought God into the kitchen. We brought God into the bathroom. We brought God into every area of our life. The thing that I used to love about a man called Gene Duffy in Alcoholics Anonymous, he talked about the must. And if you go through your Allen on 12 and 12, there are must in the Allen on 12 and 12. It says we must change. We don't suggest you change. You must change. And third step, it says, third step suggests, I teach myself from this moment on to be receptive, to open myself to help others with the help of my higher power and to help and to the help which may come in many forms, often through other people. The people in this program in the very beginning and, and on any given day are still my God that just has skin on it. My God works through people. The uh, fourth step is uh, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves, and it's an amazing thing. Uh, <laughs> We were listening to sponsorship tape coming up here, and my sponsor was talking about uh, fear, you know, and living on fear. And fear was in every area of my life. And uh, I, the first thing it made us searching and fearless moral inventory. In our relationship, everything about me, uh, in my relationship with myself, with my God, with my wife, with my daughter, with my fellow man, was motivated by fear. And uh, the one of the little things that happened to, to me is that to help me overcome fear uh, was having hope. And what you gave me is a vision beyond my present circumstances. When I came here, I had nothing going for me, and so I had present circumstances. We live this one day at a time right now, and here I got this relationship, and it's crazy. And these are present circumstances. I'd be glad to quit drinking as soon as I get the circumstances. That's where I come back and try to work the second half of the first step. I have to have a vision beyond my present circumstances. And you stop and think about it. How do you get a vision? If you're sick in the mind and you've got an obsession, how do you get a vision beyond your present circumstances when they tell you to live right now? And by doing this fourth step, gave me a vision beyond my present circumstances. When I did my fourth step, it allowed me to step out of that fear and see that it's possible for me to have something better beyond my present circumstances. I didn't have answers to my present circumstances, 
But you said if I do this fourth step, it will show me the patterns that create the insanity of my present circumstances, and maybe if you can help me change that, then I can have something better. And so my excitement was not about running in there and doing this fourth step. My excitement was the fact that you gave me some bait. They used to have them dog races where I grew up, and they always had a rabbit or a carrot simulated in front of the greyhound, and they'd have these dog races, and this mechanical rabbit would chase, would run ahead of the dogs, and the dogs would chase that. And so the fourth step was the first bait that you gave me that I could have something beyond my present circumstances. So at that point in time, I put my relationship on hold of my present circumstance. I put my relationship with my family, with my God, everything on hold. And I said, okay, I'm going to get in here and work on this fourth step. And that is going to help me see that there's something better down the road. I didn't come to Alcoholics Anonymous because I wanted to stay the same. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous because I wanted to be different. One of the things the old-timers tells us is that there's all kinds of people out in that world who don't have a conscience, but an alcoholic has got a conscience. A real alcoholic has a conscience. And I knew that alcohol had changed me to something I didn't like. I knew it had made me something. I fell in love with this lady, and it had made me hate her. See? <laughs> I fell in love with people. I always loved people. And alcohol, it made me hate you. I heard it the other night, one of the guys in my home group. I've said it for years. I came in and out of AA, in and out, and I said, you know, a belly full of booze and a head full of AA is terrible. I'll tell you something that's worse. A head full of AA and a belly full of resentment. <laughs> and I came in here with a head full of AA and a belly full of resentment. And this fourth step took care of that. The fourth step is the laxative for resentment. <laughs> always will be, always is. Even in the tenth step, go back to this. Always will be, always is. When you're bow-locked with resentments, the fourth step is the laxity for the resentment. Isn't that neat? What an analogy, but it's so true. It's something we all understand that people out there don't know how to explain it to us. The Al-Anon four-step, the blueprint for progress, was introduced to me as a way to do the inventory. And I can remember reading a question in there, and it's a question and answer session. I said, yes, no, maybe sometimes. And uh, I remember thinking it had a question, uh, how long has it been since you've been to the dentist? What has that got to do with my drunk husband and my the violence in my home? What has that got to do with me being crazy other than I didn't know how to take care of myself? The fourth step is the tool that shines the light on the true source of the problem. What's the problem? And they used to say, every time you look in the mirror, you see the problem. And I couldn't get it that way, so my sponsor, bless her heart, got me into the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and the four-column inventory. And that's the way I did my inventory, and that's the way I give this step away to people I sponsor because it has the four columns. The first column is the resentment. The second column was the cause. The third column is how it made me feel. And the fourth column was what part did I play? 
and I wanted to feel better. I did not. Up to this point, Keith had always been the problem. And on any given day, I was the victim. And I wanted to grow, and I did not want to be the victim anymore because everybody's always saying, you know, uh, this program is full of volunteers. There are no victims. Nobody made, held a gun to my head and said, you got to marry an alcoholic. It was my choice. So what was there about me that caused all these problems in this marriage? Because you're saying it's me. So I wrote Keith's name down. The second column was the violence. The third column is it made me feel like nobody like I didn't count and all that kind of stuff. And then I couldn't think of the fourth column. And my sponsor told me to get on my knees and ask God to put the words in the pencil that I needed to see because I didn't want to be a victim anymore. And I did that, and I'll never forget, when I got up, it was like watching a video. I could hear it, I could see it, and I'd say, blah, 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 and shake my finger in his face, and he'd say, get out of my face. And I'd take one step closer, and he'd say, Sue, if you don't get out of my face, I'm going to hit you. And I would take one step closer, and he'd hit me. And I thought, my God, it was me. I caused the violence in that home. If I just walked away and kept my mouth shut, none of that violence would have happened. He told me. He told me to quit, and I couldn't quit. I was no different than the alcoholic can't quit drinking. I couldn't quit getting in his face. And that's how important that step is to me. It pointed out every one of my character defects that was causing my husband and I to go opposite directions. Once I saw that fourth column and my character defects and all the things that I... Without provocation. But we invariably find that at some time in the past we have made decisions based on self which later places in a position to be hurt. I had to get out of the way, and that's where a sponsor comes. A sponsor is the thing that was able to say, listen to me, you are obsessed. A sponsor became a noise louder than my brain. A sponsor became a noise, a distraction that's louder than her. Hey! Look over here. It distracted me, and the door opened, and bam, they shoved the answer in. See? And the thing with Al-Anon's about the fourth step that I couldn't understand, it says fearless. I wasn't afraid of nothing. I told my sponsor, I'm not afraid of nothing. And when I realized that, that became my greatest fear. And I couldn't realize and it was just a couple of weeks ago, I finally, in the middle, after 19 years, I was in the middle of just rage. I just wanted to stand and scream and hit somebody. And I realized in the middle of it, what I was afraid of is another member of Al-Anon. And I was afraid for her. And she, she couldn't hear. And she couldn't see. And I was afraid for her. And I got angry, and I thought right in the middle of it, my God, it is fear. This is fear right now. And it only took 19 years for me to be right in the middle of that anger and recognize fear at the same time. One of the things in the book that's very important, and like I say, there has to be some bait here. If you don't think this is going to make it better, if you just think I'm standing up here telling you about what's happened to us, 
and and yet it doesn't apply to you. Let me throw some bait out. In the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous on page 62, what it says in here, very simply, most good ideas are simple. Okay? And this concept was the keystone of the new and triumphant arc through which we pass to freedom. And what I wanted more than anything, I want freedom of alcohol, and I want freedom of this obsession of this thing I've married. And if I can have that, then I can have freedom of myself. I didn't know you was obsessed with me. Absolutely. <laughs> and that means I've just made amends. <laughs> I want it out, baby. I want it out of this thing. Oh, yeah. And, and yet what I recognize is I thought if I could... If I could let go of the alcohol, then I could let go of her, then I'd be free. And that's the arc is that I let go of me, and then I don't have a problem with alcohol or her. Al alcoholics always act and react in opposites. And so I had the freedom, had to come within, and then I'm not obsessed. See, I'm not obsessed. So one of the things that happened in step five, and it's a very important thing, and I think step five is vitally important because, to me, that's the guidelines of relationship. It's the beginning of any relationship. If you have not built an ark with a sponsor, how are you possibly going to build an ark with a him or a her? And so there are about 20-some points of reference in step five on how to build a relationship. Guidelines that you must first do with a sponsor before you can do it with anybody or anything else. Isn't that amazing? And, and so many people come here and they want to go out here and build this relationship with him or her or them or that, and then come in here and work step five. And that's really sick. It's really sick. And I see it that people come in here and get a relationship with a sponsor, and they think they've built an ark, and they haven't. I'm going to tell you something. If your sponsor is your God, you don't have an ark. You're not free. If your sponsor has to make every damn decision in your life, you're not free. And my relationship with Sue, let me tell you something. When I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, Sue and I had been married a number of years. As sick as it was, as sick as it was, baby, I knew I loved her. Something down inside. I know that today. No sponsor is going to destroy my relationship with her. No group's going to destroy my relationship, and consequently, God is not going to destroy my relationship with her. We've changed sponsors because sponsors did not complement our relationship. But we have had to let go of things and ideas that sponsors suggested so that we could have that relationship. It's a paradox. As long as I'm not going to, in other words, the first three and four steps, we're talking about strong sponsorship and all this kind of stuff. But let me tell you something. Me and her are together. We've been together 35 years. So the search through the first four steps has been for sponsorship that supports our relationship. Not sponsorship that's trying to push that relationship away. Or make us choose. See? So we, we have sponsorship that supports our relationship. And what that means is, is that sponsor supports our program and not squeezing or pulling our relationship. If this program says 
that this, pro this program puts families back together. Why would you ask somebody to be your sponsor that doesn't talk about that? That's what we're talking about. And in step five, the thing that was so important to me, it says, first we admitted to God. When I took, and the fifth step was the one that I was the most afraid of. Because I knew God knew, and I didn't want to tell anybody. But once I tell another human being, the jig's up. And so that's what I was afraid of. And I went to my sponsor's house. We did the third step together. We knew God was in the room. And then the second thing that is so important to this that gives us the freedom is the first thing we do when we start reading that fourth step is that we admit to ourselves for the first time out loud in front of somebody else. It's the humility that starts coming into our life. It humbled me to sit there and look another person straight in the eye and say, yes, this is who I am. And once I was ready to admit out loud to somebody else, knowing God that was in the room, this is who I am, I knew the next thing that I had to start doing was changing. Because now somebody knows all my character defects, somebody knows all of my patterns, somebody knows everything that I do to manipulate him. So when I call her the next time and say, he's doing this, he's doing that, and I'm going to do this, she's going to say, oh, no, you're not. Because that's your character defect. He's doing just fine. Leave him alone. And I used to ask her, whose side are you on anyway? Uh, Let me run through these things real quick. In, in, uh, in step five in the 12 and 12, there's 23 guides to, uh, to a, a relationship. And if you don't get this down in step five with what you're trying to do in the steps with a sponsor, whoever, that's why I don't believe you can go do step five with a, you know, just, you know, catch a squirrel off the street and say, let me do it. It says right here in our Allen on 12 and 12, do not choose a family member or a close relative or the alcoholic. Right. Big mistake if you do that. Well, ultimately <laughs> to have a relationship, you have to be open. So essentially... If you get into a relationship and if you're, if really and truly your first, you know, you come in here with the infatuation, the lust, and so the lust turns into, you know, something you're trying to make permanent and then it becomes communication, you will essentially do a fifth step with that person. But I mean, you I can't live new. without being transparent. See? But when I was new and I first did my inventory, I hid it from him because if he'd read all of that stuff being new like he was, it would have been like pouring salt in a wound. Yeah. He knew it, but he didn't need to be hurt by it. See, one of the things was... And as we heal, we can hear things about each other because we're working on acceptance of who we are. When we fought, we threw all this stuff out. What can I say to hurt you more? Mm -hmm. Now, you don't have to drink together to do that. I mean, relationships that just started this morning can do that this afternoon. See? But what I had to do after with this step is that I had to... The, the, the values of what I'm going to read to you in step five here is it brought the truth out. The truth. So a lot of things we say to try to hurt somebody if they think they're hurting us, the truth weeds it out. So if you look in, in the 12 and 12, the AA 12 and 12, the very first rule of love, we not me, is thy, uh, they all deflated our ego. So to, in any relationship you can't have ego. 
You can't have a relationship with somebody and have ego <laughs> at all. There is no. That's where the tradition is so important. There's one ultimate authority, and it ain't me. Okay. The next one is peace of mind, long-term relationship. You can't have a relationship without peace of mind. You can't have. You either love or you hate. You either love or you hate. You either attract the things you fear the most, you attract the things you love the most. The second uh, uh, part of a relation, long-term relationship, on, on, uh, I'm reading out of 12 and 12, page 55, we cannot live alone with our pressing problems. We, that's the second most important part of any relationship is a we. We. It has to be two. We. So I, I want you to do this, and I'm going to do that. Yeah. We do stuff. Any relationship has to have something that's vitally important. If we have swept the searchlight, you cannot have a relationship if you start the relationship out with secrets. I can have secrets of the past in my fifth step, but you, I cannot have a relationship with her today if I got a secret today. Every time I pick up a secret and I don't communicate, my secret could be as simple as me thinking, you may think you want me to do this, but I am not going to do this. So I allude to the fact that you can convince me that I'll do it, but I'm really not going to do it. So i got a secret. And it can be just as simple as, i got to run to the store, how much money you got in your wallet? And you got 20 bucks in your wallet, and you say five. Okay, on page uh, 56, <laughs> right, page 56, even AA old-timers sober for years often paid dearly for skimming this step. They will tell how they tried to carry the load, Alone, how much they suffered of uh, irritability, anxiety, remorse, depression, and how unconsciously seeking relief they would sometimes accuse even their best friends of the very character defects they themselves were trying to conceal. My relationship with her, if I'm doing that with her, ain't going to work. Right there is no more games, man. No more games. We don't play those games anymore in this relationship. There are no games in this relationship. We got communication. That's the fourth uh, little gig there. Okay, and and if you go down on that same page, it says everybody had to confess his own, and that's the fifth truth about you, me. Here's how I feel. This is what I believe. This is what I'm thinking now, and this is what I'm doing in step five. But these are guidelines for a relationship. The sixth one is at the bottom. Most of us would declare that without a fearless admission of our defects to another human being, we could not stay sober. And that's the acceptance of me. I have to admit that to her. See? The seventh one is is uh, we get rid of our terrible sense of isolation. How can you have a relationship if you've got a terrible sense of isolation? <laughs> See, you learn that in the in the fifth step. The eighth one is is over on page fifty seven. <clears throat> That's one reason we loved alcohol too well. It did us. It did let us act extra extemporaneously. You cannot act extemporaneously in a relationship because you're building secrets again and lie. Uh, where is it? The seventh one, where are we? That seven is uh, that one, uh, loneliness. Loneliness? You can't have loneliness in a relationship. That's where I found the difference between aloneness and loneliness. If I have a relationship with Sue, I can have aloneness, but I don't have loneliness. See? And uh, the eighth one is Same down Same thing here. with your God. 
You can right. be alone by yourself, but as long as you have a God in your life, you're never alone. Right. Uh, our moral inventory has persuaded us that all around forgiveness is desirable. I have to have that forgiveness in my relationship, or I don't have. I build a resentment. Uh, the next one is uh, no defect can be corrected unless we clearly see what it is. And I found out in my relationship, I have things about me that may be driving her absolutely nuts, but it don't bother me. See? It don't bother me. Little thing. Little thing. Uh, though now re recognize our defects are still there, something that uh, uh, had to be done about them, and soon found that we could not wish or will them away by ourselves. Lack of power in that relationship. I can't change her. I either love her or I don't love her. She either wants to be with me or she don't. She don't put conditions on this. My wife has never said, I love you if your home group is. Never. She's never done that. We'd found that crap out before we got here. See? That's what I found out before I got here. You don't put those, she put those kind of demands. I'll love you if you'll go to church. I'll love you if you'll come over to my house. See, those kind of things are still... It's so funny, the home group thing that he said stuck in my mind. That happens before we get the program. When I was in high school, I lived in Puritan. We fought all the time with the Spearman girls 27 miles away. I mean, that stuff's childish. It's high school stuff. It doesn't matter. We belong to a fellowship, and it's worldwide. The 13th uh, value for uh, step five for a relationship is on page 59. Or anger and hurt pride might be the smoke screen under which we were hiding some of our defects while we blamed others for them. No more smoke screens. Yeah, right. You know, no more smoke screens. We, we, we did that before we got here. Come on. See? And the fifth, what is the other one? Uh, advise and accept direction. There's a sponsorship value again. Uh, but there's times that we do direction with each other. I mean, I consider it direction. Uh, when Key says, will you do this for me? I don't have time, babe. Would you do this for me? And I say, yeah. One of the most uh, uh, honest parts of a relationship is on page 60. When we were honest with another person, it confirms that we have been honest with ourselves and with God. That's the key to any relationship what we're learning in here when you're doing that with a sponsor in step five that's the key that gives me the uh the relationship with her uh the benefit of, of talking to another person is what we can get his direct comment or counsel on our situation and there had to be no doubt in our minds what the advice is in other words what do you think what i recognize in relationship from this fourth and fifth step is there's values that she has as a woman that i'll never have as a man and I have to accept that, and there's strength in that. There's places today where I just say, sick them, babe, I'm, you know, get it. <laughs> I don't function well there, you know. And, uh, you know, you go on. Uh, our next problem will be to discover that the person with whom we are to confide. And I have, this is the lady. See, this is a relationship. We confide in each other. Uh, we have, you know, we have some an answers for our serious problem. We have... Uh, and if we don't have them, we go to our sponsors, and then we take the answer back to each other. The real test of the situation are your own willingness to confide and your full confidence in the one with whom you share your first uh, accurate self-survey. 
I mean, that's building what we, what is that if they're in a relationship? If I don't build that with a sponsor, with my fourth step and my fifth step, how am I possibly going to do that with her? When I, if I'm BSing her, I say, this is how I feel. She says, no, that ain't how you feel. This is how you feel. No, this is how I feel. And I have to build that confidence. Most of our arguments before we got to this program, I had to realize because I was trying to change his mind. One of the great, one of the great rules of love is on page 62 of the fifth step. Provided you hold back nothing, no secrets, no lies of silence. Twenty, we had a deal. Twenty-five words or less. And what that does is builds trust. And it started so simple with me as saying, "I'm going to be home." by 4 o'clock today. I was either home at 4 o'clock today or I called him and said, I'm running late. I'll be home at 4.30. That started Bill in the trust in our relationship because I never allowed myself time and I never got home when I said I would. And the last rule of love in, in the fifth step is as the pain subsides, the healing tranquility takes place. So every, every obsession, as an obsession goes away, as the pain subsides, as that needy approval and all that stuff subsides, then what do you get? A healing tranquility, and I accept you as you are. And I either love you or I don't. And you're either going down the same road as me or you ain't. And anything that's almost is not. And if we're not going down the same road, and if we don't have people that are trying to help us together and try to, you know, help us go in the same direction of our relationship, we don't have it. I found that out in step five. And I build on it with my prayer and meditation. <laughs> Step six, we are entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. These are things that once I did my fifth step, I knew without a shadow of a doubt that what God's trying to do with me is to build something. To build something out of nothing. Something that was damaged and destroyed when I got here. And uh, I had to recognize these character defects. The most important thing about the character defects with Sue and I was the fact that I had things that I'd done that she didn't like, and we didn't know how to communicate about them. And I didn't know it bothered her. This is areas of the sexual part. People talk about all this sexual part in the thing. I didn't know anything about the sexual part of our relationship until I got to step six. I didn't find it out in step five. I did my sex inventory in step five. I saw some of the patterns in the games. I hated women when I got here because she controlled me. Sex was a misdemeanor. The more I missed, the meaner I got. And she was using that as some kind of a weapon. She, that's why 98% of relationships are sexually in the beginning and then becomes communication in the end. Whenever it becomes communication, you're not using sex as a manipulating item. And in our relationship, the defects of character there was it was a manipulator. I was a speed freak drunk, and she used to take me to the bedroom and throw one on me because it was a tranquilizer. Not because it was passion or love or anything there. It was a control item. Just get rid of him. <laughs> Fix him, get rid of him. Yeah. And I had to realize, it was at this point in my life that I had to realize that I had to come, become a giver and check my motives. Taking our comfort, it says. That's and right, page 67. <laughs> is, uh, the purpose of this step is to, we're now ready to accept God's help. And to know with absolute certainty that God's ready to work in our life. The defects of character on the sixth step is just a matter to me of making a list of those character defects that came out of my inventory, mostly the fourth column, and I was willing to look at them. To me, that's taking 
when I wrote them down, I knew who I was, and I knew what was causing me pain. And I was entirely ready for have for God to remove them. The way I knew I was entirely ready because I was willing to follow sponsor direction. I was willing to look at those defects. I was willing to quit doing the things to him and Simone that I'd always done to him. It's really important to understand whenever you're coming to these uh, uh, six and seven step, and, and I'm talking about a relationship, you can't make love to your worst enemy. And love and hate won't sleep in the same bed. I remember we got in the program in May, and, and my birthday was in August. His birthday's two days before mine, and, and it's our first sober birthdays. And I get him a, a card and a present, and oh, wow, you know, and now he's sober. He really knows that I gave him his birthday present, and my birthday's two days later. Four days later, I go to my sponsor and said, I didn't get a birthday present, I didn't get a card, I didn't get nothing, and he's sober. And she said, you've got to share that with him. But it's not what you say, it's how you say it that counts. And so I said, okay. So I went home, and I told Keith, I said, I got a resentment. He said, okay. And I said, two days ago is my birthday, and you're sober, and you didn't get me a present or a card or nothing. And he said, well, that's because I had a resentment towards you and I didn't want to do anything for you when I didn't feel that way. I said, great, that is the greatest gift you've ever given me. And he goes, you're crazy. <laughs> but it was the first time he'd been that honest with me. The big book of Alcoholics Anonymous tells us why we're doing this all along. We're not doing this so we feel good about each other. We're not doing this so we have a wonderful thing. It says our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. That's why we're doing this. We're not doing this. We're not working these steps so that we become the couple. No, no, no. We were not connected at the hip for three years, max. If you look at the power of the third step prayer, it's an unbelievable thing. And I'm grateful I didn't see the power of that prayer in the very beginning because it would overwhelm me. But I read it and said it over and over again. And the third step prayer says, God, I offer myself to thee to build with me, step six, and to do with me as thou wilt, step seven. Relieve me of the bondage of self, step one, that I may better do thy will is what you want me to be. Take away my difficulties, which is my seven. relationships, that victory over them, which is step six and seven again, victory over these difficulties. What are my dif difficulties? Misdirected instincts. All those games. The victory over them may bear witness. That's what we're doing. We're bearing witness the here this afternoon step. that these things work. We've been together 35 years. I love her more today than I loved her yesterday. I woke up with a different person today. We're going in the same direction. There was no fight about coming up here. See? We knew where we were supposed to be. We know where we're supposed to be done. I had 14 things I'd have rather done today if I let any one of them lock in, but I know what I'm supposed to do today. The, the victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. Why? So I can be a better person. That's what step six and seven is all about. So I can be a better person. Step six and seven is about change. Change. i got to want to change. I don't want to be the person that alcohol made me. 
It is impossible for us to have a relationship with God, a sponsor, or another human being without working these steps. One of the baits, one of the baits again, one of the little th why you do this, step seven says, humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. Why? So you can become truly happy. It ain't so you, oh, I'm, I'm a better person. <laughs> so you can be truly happy. It shows. It shows. People that are locked into an obsession, locked in with some kind of a self-will thing, it shows. When you do these things, it shows. There's a light about you. You've got things going on. It is the point, step seven, where you get the hope, which is the vision of something better beyond your present circumstances. Step seven is where you get that. Humility is becoming teachable. Now I know what's wrong with me. What do I do with it? I give it to God. I give all the bad things to God to the best of my ability every day. And I turn it over. And I work on the positive side to me. That's how I get better. My sponsor said, if you work on the negative, you become more negative. But if you work, it on, work on the positive, you will become more positive. Give hate to God, and I work on being a lover. Now, give greed to God, and I, become, I work on being a giver. You can take every one of your character defects and flip them like that, and you give the bad side to God, and you start working on the positive and change will ultimately happen in your life, whether you want it to or not, if you're doing that. It says in step six, it says, this is a step that separates the men from the boys. Oh, a lot okay. of people stop here. Right here is sponsorship. This separates the men from the boys. In sponsorship, who's the man? And who's the boy? That's why we call them babies and sponsor. I mean, that's, this is the whole gig right here. That's why my sponsor says, I talk, you listen. I'm the man, you're the boy. You're the little child. You don't know how to do nothing. I'm going to share with you. I'm going to tell you that I see you doing something that's going to get you drunk. It's like I shared in the very beginning when Jim's telling me the story right before this. You heard a guy get up with 10 years and talk, and he says, I'm doing great. I don't have a problem in the world. I'll never drink again. As soon as the meeting's over, his sponsor went right to him and said, you're going to drink again, and I'll tell you when you're going to do it. 